So allow all of your molecules to arrive here, molecule by molecule. Some may be scattered back in the office or back with whatever conversation you were having before you came here. See if you can gather the molecules of your being and allow them to arrive. Feeling the body. Noticing how the body is. Places of tension, places of ease. Not judging any of them. Just noticing how it is. Letting go of whatever is hanging over from the day and coming fully into being in this room. Presence. Knowing. Knowing the body, knowing the moods of the mind. What mood is coloring the mind? Joy, sorrow, despair, love, aversion. Restlessness, peace, calm. Notice the mood of the mind. And as you let go of the past and of the future, what is here now?
this breath, this body, this mind, this heart. These six senses. Good evening. That feels better now that we've sat for a little while. I'm so happy to see you all, and I hope you had a really wonderful Thanksgiving. Did you? Mm -hmm. Family. You know. Come see, come see. Some people have wonderful experiences with family. Some people not so wonderful. I hope that you have a lot to be grateful for and a lot to give thanks for. And that's your good fortune will continue. So we talked um, about the Eightfold Path <coughs> and what is a path. And we got some wonderful answers, actually, from all of you. Um, one of the answers which I particularly appreciated was uh, that a path is uh, made by walking. That it's not a path unless it's walked. And I think if we're going to talk about the Eightfold Path, that that's the most important um, thing to remember, is that we can talk about it and of course, because of language and the limitations of language, we have to talk about it in concepts and ideas. But actually, these teachings, whether it's the Eightfold Path or any other teaching in the Dharma, 
these teachings are really not intended as cognitive ideas. These teachings are really more about how we experience life and the lens through which we view those experiences. Because teachers, even the Buddha said, don't believe anything just because I told you it's so. What you must do is, is test it for yourself and see if it's true for you in your own experience. So that's the, that's the ground on which we stand, that's the hallmark of these teachings, is that they're experiential, they're not conceptual, even though we may speak about them in conceptual terms. And we talked about the fact that the path is not a straight line, that we may talk about it as eight aspects of a path, and so there may be an idea that we need to you know, do wise view first, and then uh, wise intention, and then we check our speech and our livelihood and our actions, and then we do our meditation. But actually, the path is always represented by a circle, which I'm sure you've seen those eightfold, those eight-spoked wheels everywhere in the Dharma. That's the path. And what's beautiful about that is that it comes back on itself. It's like a wheel that keeps turning on itself. So that in order for us to enter practice, we have to have right view. Right? We have to have some understanding of what it is, what, what, why it is we even want to do meditation. And at the same time, wisdom doesn't really ripen without a disciplined mind. So meditation and wisdom really go hand in hand. And of course, it's not that easy to have a great day of meditation after a wonderful morning of killing. Right? Your conscience might prick you. So in order for us to uh, meditate, or learn to discipline the mind, there has to be some discipline in bodily speech and mental action. So this eightfold path of wisdom, of uh, living a life of integrity, of um, meditation, is a, is a complete path. And of course a path goes from somewhere to somewhere else. So we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. Where is it coming from and where is it going to and why are we walking it? And we talked about it last week, last time, as um, a, a journey through an inner landscape. So why do we even want to walk through this inner landscape? What's it about? So there's, a, there's an understanding that we have these eight spokes and the, 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 what the Buddha, and we talked last, last time about the Four Noble Truths, that this Eightfold Path is the fourth truth. That it's the truth that, and we talked about the whole formulation of the Four Noble Truths, that as the first 
teaching that the Buddha gave after his awakening that um, this is the profound truth that he realized on the night of his awakening that there is this thing called dukkha and I won't go into a long definition of it because I don't want to repeat last week but dukkha is this not so much suffering I'm not that crazy about that as a, as a as an interp- as, a, as a translation, but more as um, something that gives you a bumpy ride. It's like a bumpy ride. We see life as having dukkha, but it's a, anything from a hangnail to the pain of someone you love very much dying. So dukkha runs that whole spectrum. Right? And it's the unsatisfactoriness that we notice of living life in this body. That things never seem to get perfect. And if they do seem to get perfect, the next minute it changes anyway. So it's never quite perfect. And that's the first truth. And then the second truth that there's a cause, which is the craving, clinging mind. And the third, that it's possible for that to end, for us to abandon that craving clinging mind and therefore the suffering then, and that there's this path to that. So when we talk about the Eightfold Path, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the end of suffering, the possibility that suffering can completely end. And I like to really emphasize that because, especially in our Western culture, we've been taught meditation first most of the time. That's how we've come to these teachings is we heard about meditation or somebody dragged us to a meditation or um, we were in so much pain that we thought we'd try anything and somebody suggested meditation. Um, And then we find out, oh, there are a whole set of foundational teachings under under this practice. And we become interested because we notice there's some little bit of freedom that comes. Right, from meditating. When we go into it, we keep it as a discipline and we practice more and more. We notice that something shifts, something changes. And that maybe we even taste freedom. You know, as Ajahn Chah, my teacher's teacher, said, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. Right? So we notice that when we meditate and we start to let go of it, that you know, the, the ego that has this habit of self-referencing with everything starts to stop doing that so much. And voila, when we start to let go of the self as the center of everything and the reference to everything, we notice that there's a little bit of peace that happens, that this bumpy road starts to get a little bit smoother. And so we get interested in the teachings. So that's the background against which we talk about this Eightfold Path, and we went through the whole, the Four Noble Truths in more depth and more detail. And, I'm going to talk about wisdom today, the wisdom uh, group 
of the, of the Eightfold Path, which is the first two branches, the first two steps on the Eightfold Path. And sometimes I'm going to talk about it as steps. And so, and that's okay, because of course sometimes it is linear. But just to know that it's linear against the backdrop of this circular wheel. So this first um, group of wisdom consists of two of the eight steps on the path. And if you do any reading about the Eightfold Path, what you'll notice is that some people put meditation first, some people put morality first, some people put wisdom first. But I like to I like to put wisdom first, and I also like to put it at the end. Because it's because there are two kinds of wisdom. There's a mundane kind of wisdom. And there's a supramundane kind of wisdom. So that's the, and that's called, the first step is right understanding or right view. You'll see it translated both ways. It's um, samaditi, right understanding or right view. And the second group, the second part of the wisdom group is right intention or um, aspiration and that's sama sankapa and these two are very much um, associated with the Four Noble Truths. Because right understanding in the mundane sense is the understanding of karma. And in the supramundane sense, it's the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. And I'm gonna talk about that. And then I'm gonna talk about wise intention, some sankapa. And wise intention is essentially the intention to renounce, the intention um, for kindness, and the intention for harmlessness. So these, uh, these aspects are what make up wisdom. And this is the classical teaching. But I'd like to ask you, what do you think is wisdom? Now that I've, and I don't, I, I'm really not after a quote dharmic kind of answer. What do you understand wisdom to be in the everyday, normal, usual sense? If you think of somebody who's wise, for instance, what qualities do they have? do you think that makes them wise? So anyway. Yes, please, and please Scary. give me a name. Give me a name. Sean. Sean. Hi, Sean. Hi. See, now everybody's moved, so I can't, I can't yeah. cheat and know that, because you used to sit over there. You sat over there. Okay, there. See? Didn't make that. 
something there's um, an abstract idea that truth is an abstract thing that there is a truth out there with a capital T yeah. do you really well there's my truth there's your truth and then there's the truth really so it's trying to alleviate that sense of self from perception just letting it be intuitive There's something that, so, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so if I I am, just let me know. So are you saying that there's some kind of intuitive sense of the truth? So experience and the ability to learn and be teachable with experience, and then some intuitive sense of of the truth and the way and being available to the way things are, to be available to the truth, this kind of intuitive truth. So when you say there's your truth and my truth, what does that mean? kind of stepping back and allowing the truth to show itself. That's wisdom, in your opinion. Okay, thank you. Uh, maybe detachment. What's your name? Kim. Kim. Yeah, and it's a little bit related to the inner truth and the teachings. It's, if you know that something is true, then no matter what happens around you, you can, can be calm and at peace. 
So it's being detached is wisdom. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, my name is Maria. Um, I think that wisdom is. Um, I kind of feel what I what I think it is. Um, is is an ability to not an ability. Well, maybe an ability, but it's a kind of insight um, beyond what's necessarily happening now. So looking beyond and maybe seeing. Um, being able to feel some significance beyond an immediate moment. Um, so it's almost a kind of reverberation from an experience. Um, and being able to see how situate yourself, your own experience in that moment, but connecting it to something that's, I guess, bigger, um, kind of timeless. So maybe call it a kind of universal, um, and touching upon that, so maybe you know an insight to say human experience or just a kind of eternal experience. And so it almost feels like seeing into a window beyond what's immediately here. And I think that it comes and goes. Um, I think it's in all of us. I think that's what's come up at different times. So do you think that that um, I'm sorry to cut you off, but do you think, do you think that that jives with what Diane was saying that about the truth of things right here as they are? Um, um, I don't know that I think that there's um, like a kind of truth that's beyond something that you can just touch upon. I think that you... I, I, I like the word cultivate because I think that it's your own experience. I don't know that everyone experiences wisdom in their own way. They experience and I think you can share it, possibly in language, but I don't think it's it's their like um, atmosphere or universe. I don't know if that makes sense. I, I'm not sure that it does. To, I'm not sure that I completely understand. So I think what you're saying is that there's some larger perspective into which we can plug our perception or our understanding. Yeah. And that even though we may know the truth of this moment, okay. that it is also connected to something that's larger than this moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that I'd use the word truth. But yeah. I think it's more ex experience, and I can know what I'm experiencing, but I can see that in a bigger significance. So it's so, you, so wisdom is seeing things in a larger perspective, in the context of a larger perspective. Is that a good? I think so. Yeah. I don't, again, I don't want to. Yeah, no, okay. yeah, I just took five minutes. Okay, so, <laughs> so tell me your name again. Maria. Maria, okay, thank you. Um, she was before me. Well, I kind of like having okay. men too. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was going to say that my experience of white people, not myself, obviously, but um, there tends to be a space between the, the whatever the point of the wisdom is or and the occurrence of whatever is happening. Mm -hmm. So the you know people that are very reactionary, we don't consider them very wise. Mm -hmm. Whereas I don't not long pause. Mm -hmm. Generally, 
attributed to wisdom, even though the person may be completely stumped. <laughs> um, so I, it's just that I think space to allow spaciousness to the thing, that the gap. Wisdom, so allowing space, allowing space, and to cut down on reactivity. Yeah. So say your name. Manuel. My name's Shari, and I was thinking about wisdom and truth. And to say what it means, I think you have to say what, what is untruth. And I immediately thought that I and, and everyone else, it's as if we're covered by many layers of veils hiding us. And to be wise is to recognize this and maybe be able to Strip away from yourself some of these veils to discover what's underneath, what is the truth for you. And wisdom is also the compassion to see that everyone else is wearing these veils too. And maybe it's not your job to pierce them, but to, to care. Beautiful. Thank you. Last one. Uh, well, you took some of the words out of my mouth, Sharon. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm very happy to hear it. Um, I was going to say that truth is the appreciation of an experience. We're asking about wisdom. Okay, fine. Wisdom is an appreciation of truth without illusion or delusion. Um, to my mind, one of the illusions which takes us out of wisdom is the idea of a higher truth that's not present in the, in the moment that we are. Say that again? What takes us out of? That, that one, I think one of the illusions that um, many people carry is the idea that wisdom is associated with a higher truth that is separate or constant and takes us out of the moment. Mm -hmm. okay. And again? Jim. Jim. So those are all very beautiful responses. And all and so one what's really beautiful about that is we see that there are many aspects of wisdom. And not none of these responses were wrong. Right? They may be all incomplete because when we try to put, you know, something as large as wisdom into a, into a, you know, we try to explain it or describe it or define it, uh, by, by definition it's going to be incomplete, right? And yet, what you, you all showed, all of the different facets of this jewel uh, called wisdom. And Emmanuel said something that I thought was really interesting which was, this of course applies to everybody else but me, or to other people, not to me. You didn't, you didn't say everybody else, I don't want to misquote you. And I really want to highlight that because I think that that is one of the pieces of um, really understanding with wisdom who we are. What you said was very wise, except for that. Except for the, the taking yourself out of the possibility of wisdom and that kind of self-denigration 
Although in some ways, we, you know, we've been trained to it. We've been trained to humility. There's nothing wrong with humility. And so I don't want to say that you're wrong. But I want, I, I'd like us all to, to reflect on that because I think you express something that each of us has felt in this room from time to time. Right? Everybody else's lives or so many other people's lives, but that could never be or that isn't me. And that's part of wrongly. The idea that we're not included in this, uh, in, in this, first in this human life, and second in the human life that the Buddha promises of total freedom. And part of this, this journey of total freedom is the journey of uh, wisdom. So I want to, um, just talk a little bit about um, Samaditi in a, in a classical way and then I want to talk about uh, um, Samasankapa right intention also in a classical way and then I want us to talk about how it relates to us in this 21st century. Does that sound okay? So right view gives us the perspective for practice, as I said before. So that because if there isn't some understanding of what we're entering into, then we can't enter into it because there's no real basis or foundation for doing it. And right intention, or samasankapa, gives us that sense of direction. So. But what happens, as I said also before, is that as we start on this path of right intention and right understanding and right intention, and we move through all of the different steps of the path, when we when we are when we come ar back around, we come right back around to wisdom. And what happens is our wisdom gets deeper and deeper as the uh, as the steps of the path become more and more practiced and disciplined. So we arrive at a superior right view and right intention, which form uh, the training in higher wisdom. So we start with mundane wisdom, and then we, we look at ethics, and we look at meditation, and then we come back to uh, higher wisdom. So right view is the beginning of the path, and it forms, it, helps us to see what our starting point is and what our destination is and all of the different landmarks to pass as we, as we move along the path of our practice advancement. So if we, if, we, if we start a practice without right view, without this understanding of what wisdom is, we get lost in the futility of a kind of indirective, uh, undirected movement. So we're moving here and we're moving there. It's like starting out on the path and you don't know where you're starting and you don't know where you're ending. You don't know where you are on the map. And so, you know, 
we've all been lost, right? Every one of us, I'm sure, has come to a place that I was just on a, on a small island. And even being on a small island where the road, there was one main road that went right around, we got lost. My husband turned into a parking lot instead of turning left on a traffic roundabout. And we just wind up, we had absolutely no idea where we were. And I said, look at that. This is like the eightfold path, right? <laughs> if, we, if we have no idea where we're starting and we have no idea where we're going and we have no idea where we are, we're bound to get lost. And so it's the same thing with right view. We, we need to understand uh, how things are. So to arrive at the desired place that we want to get to, we have to have some idea of the general direction that we're going in and the roads that are leading to it. And the, on this path, it's, these right roads are like the, the framework of this eightfold path. So, and, and the, the framework is the understanding that's established by right view. So right view is kind of, you know, what we need to understand where we're coming from and where we're going. And one of the things that we need to understand is that our understanding of the way life is comes from a lot of different uh, sources. So we have theoretical convictions about so, you know, I, I asked about wisdom, Every, you know, so I bet if I had waited long enough, every single person on the circle, even if you didn't put your hand up, you had an opinion, right? You had an opinion about what right view is. And where does that opinion about wisdom, and where, where does that opinion come from? It comes from our families, it comes from our siblings, it comes from our peers, it comes from our teachers, it comes from our environment, it comes from so many different uh, places. And they govern these, our theoretical convictions about the way things are, even about wisdom, govern our attitudes and our actions and our whole orientation to existence. All of our opinions about what it means to be human are governed by some theoretical convictions that we have about who we are, what we are, and what this life is about. And our views may not even be clear, right? It may be a kind of hazy fog, as you were as you were saying, right? Shari. Shari. What Shari was saying about it, there being this kind of, you know, we can have this even this cloudy idea about what's going on. And we can be deluded. And Jim was also referring to delusion. You know, that we have some deluded idea about what we think is true. In these veils, as uh, Shari was saying, that we have veils covering our eyes. And so, but we do have these, this conviction about how we think things are. So we have these beliefs and ideas. And whether we, whether they're clear, or they're expressed, or they're unexpressed, 
these views have a really far-reaching effect on our lives. They have influence. They structure our perceptions, they order our values, and they crystallize into a kind of ideational framework that we use to uh, interpret ourselves and interpret the meaning of the world, of our being in the world. They condition our actions, they lie behind our choices and our goals, and our efforts to turn these goals uh, from ideas into actuality. And they have consequences. They have far-reaching and deep consequences. And, those con and the, the consequences of our actions hinge on the ideas and the views from which they spring. So there's a, there's a commitment that we have in our views, and everybody who had expressed a view about wisdom had some commitment to that, to those ideas, right? So um, Maria's idea about a, a larger context, you're pretty, you're, you're pretty decided about that, weren't you? I didn't, I didn't see a lot of wavering about that, but there's, but there's, a, there's a conviction, and, and it's okay, uh, but we need to know what those uh, beliefs are. So what is real and what's, so if we want to make a decision on the question of what's real and what's true, it follows that our views divide into two categories, right views and wrong views. And so the former right view corresponds to what's real. And, uh, and, the, and the, the, the latter wrong view um, deviates from what re what's real and puts what's false in its place. So we have right views and we have wrong views. And, so, and what the Buddha taught is that these two kinds of views, right views and wrong views, lead to very different kinds of actions. So, uh, and not only do they lead to very different kinds of action, but they lead to very opposite results. So right view leads to one kind of action and therefore one kind of result, and wrong view leads to another kind of action and therefore another kind, kind, um, kind of result. So whatever, and what he said is that even if, if your wrong view is kind of inchoate, it's kind of, you know, we're not even quite sure that we have a, that even that kind of vague view, if it's wrong, will lead us to courses of action that lead to suffering. And remember, everything that we talk about in the Eightfold Path talking about what leads towards happiness and away from suffering, and what leads towards suffering and away from happiness. And what he said is that right view leads towards uh, happiness, and wrong view leads uh, towards suffering.
And what he said is that I see no single factor so responsible for the arising of unwholesome states of mind as wrongdoing, and no factor so helpful for the arising of wholesome states of mind as right view. And again he said, there is no single factor so responsible for the suffering of living beings as wrong being, and no factor so potent in promoting the good of living beings as right being. So for me, when I read that, when I see that, it gets my attention. Because what he's basically saying is that our view, our understanding of how things are is like the whole enchilada. Right? <coughs> that that's, if we have right view, that gives rise to right action, which gives rise to happiness. To, well, to, to wholesome states of mind, which give rise to happiness. And, and the opposite for wrong view. So if we look at right view, it's like it's it's large. It's a large it's a large bucket. In the in the fullest sense of the word, of, of, in the fullest sense of right view. It's a full understanding of the entire Dharma. But for, since we can't, in four weeks, talk about the entire Dharma and understand it completely, we can look at two kinds of right view as primary. One is right view, which is in the text, is referred to as mundane, mundane right view. And it, that operates within the confines of the world. And the other is super mundane right view, which, is, which leads to liberation from the world. And I don't think this is the sense in which you were speaking, Maria. I think you were talking more about um, seeing things in a larger context. So in, in some ways, I think that's what you were referring to. Yeah. It's like looking at experience, as Sean was talking about, looking at experience and, and learning from experience. And in a way, you were completing what he was saying. You're saying that you're looking at everything from a larger perspective. Yes, you're seeing things in the moment, but really looking at them from a larger perspective. And then Jim kind of came in on the other side and said, well, yeah, that's true, and we also have to understand about our seeing things clearly. So that in a way, you were, all of you together were really forming this understanding of wisdom. So, What is mundane right view? Does anybody know? Anybody guess from what I've been saying? It's understanding the law of karma. The law of karma. 
So what's the law of karma? Anybody want to say? John? Yeah, everything has a later consequence for previous consequences. Okay. So here's how it's stated in the text. Beings are the owners of their actions, the heirs of their actions. They spring from their actions, are bound to their actions, and are supported by their actions. Whatever deeds they do, good or bad, of those they shall be heirs. And of course, that's the that's the basic formulation. I mean, you know, in the um, in the in the monasteries of Asia, many of the monasteries of Asia, they chant that every single morning and every single night. And over the over the text, over the reading the text, uh, the the texts kind of um, illustrate that more precisely and more specifically over many of the provisions in the text. And one stock passage, for example, says that virtuous actions such as giving and offering alms to monastics have moral significance, that good and bad deeds produce corresponding fruits, that one has a duty to serve mother and father, that there is rebirth and a world beyond the visible one, and that religious teachers of high attainment can be found who expound the truth about the world on the basis of their own superior realization. So let's talk a little bit about karma. The actual definition of karma, or kama, it's called in Pali, is action. So karma, or kama, is a kind of neutral uh, term that really just means action. But in, in the Dharma, in the Buddhist texts, what's really um, meant is volitional action. Volitional action, intentional action, action that has a volition, a volitional component, where it's something that we want to do, that we know we're doing, that we understand is to be done. So, volition is not neutral. Volition has a kind of morality to it. So again, we're moving into not just, we, we see how all of the different aspects of the path uh, form on each other. But so, what what is said in the text is that actions are given their ethical significance by the volition behind them. So kama, you know, it is a neutral word, it's action. So what's really key is the volition behind the action. So the, the the classical example that I've always seen in the text is so two people are killed by someone else um, using a knife. One is killed because he's stabbed to death. The other is killed 
because a surgeon attempts to save his life with a knife. Both of them are the same action. There's a killing by a knife. One is uh, ethically correct, one is ethically uh, incorrect. So having some will, some idea of what we want to do, some volition of what we want to do, we act. So if we understand then that in the Dharma, what we're talking about when we talk about karma or action is a volitional action, what, what it actually comes down to is that karma is really a mental event. Maybe accompanied by a physical action, but it's actually um, a mental event. It originates in the mind, and the action completes whatever the drive of the mind is, the disposition of the mind, and the purpose of the mind. So this volition, this intention, becomes um, actualized through body, through speech, and through mind. So the body, the speech, and the mind are actually the instruments of this volition, the instruments of this intention, of this idea, of this wanting. And the body, speech, and the mind are called the three doors of action. So right view is more than just a simple knowledge of the general meaning of karma. It's, so we need to understand the ethical distinction of karma into wholesome and unwholesome, the principal cases of each type and the roots from which these actions spring. And now we're going to go right back into the Four Noble Truths. We're going to come back right into craving. We're going to understand craving a little bit more deeply. So in the Sutta, it says, when a, when a noble disciple understands what is comically unwholesome, and the root of unwholesome karma, what is comically, comically wholesome and the root of wholesome karma, then she has right view. So it's distinguished as unwholesome karma that's morally blameworthy, that's detrimental to spiritual development and conducive to suffering for oneself and others. And that's unwholesome and wholesome karma is action that's morally commendable, helpful to spiritual growth, and productive of benefits for oneself and others. And this is going to come right back into our right intention. So I want you to hold those in your mind. That there's wholesome karma, it's called kusala, and unwholesome karma, which is called akusala. <coughs> So the Buddha says there are 10 kinds of karma, wholesome and unwholesome, that are primary, which there are a whole lot of others. But he says these are 10. And there are three are verbal, three are bodily, four are verbal, and three are mental. So the bodily ones are take, destroying life, taking what is not given, and wrong conduct in regard to sense pleasures. 
wrong conduct in regard to sense pleasures. In other words, the kind of lust or desire for sense pleasure. And I want to just put a little asterisk there and a little footnote that it doesn't mean that you can't enjoy fully a bar of chocolate or sex with your partner or anything that is a sense pleasure. That's not what the, the, because remember the eightfold path is the middle way. And what does the middle way mean? It means that it's neither mortification of the body nor overindulgence in the senses. It's the path between those two. So it's taking care of the body. It's understanding what it means to be human, both in body and in mind. But it means that we're not indulging in a way that causes us suffering. So destroying life, taking what is not given, and wrong conduct in regard to sense pleasures. And I'm, I'm not going to go further into that than, than I've already said. And that's bodily. And then the verbal actions, false speech, slanderous speech, harsh speech, and idle chatter. And I think it's interesting that speech has the one that has four kinds mm -hmm. of ways that you could go wrong, right? And it's false, slanderous, harsh, or idle. And then the third, the mental are covetousness, ill will, and wrong view. So those are the ten that the Buddha kind of uh, singled out and said, this is what you have to watch out for. Right? This, is, this is really, these ten acts are going to be the hardest. And why, why did he single those out? Because those are all kind of day-to-day -day things you know, destroying life, so the mosquito lands on you, bang, right? Annoyance, God. We don't even think about it. We don't even think about the life that we've just destroyed. And we, and we do it from that to, of course, taking human life. Taking what is not given. What does that show? That shows a kind of greed. Right? It, it involves greed and envy and jealousy. And um, again, lust for sense pleasure. So all of these are, you know, we, we look at them and we list them, but what I recommend to you is that you don't just take these things as being lists, but that you really reflect on them. Why would the Buddha take all of these ten, just these ten, say, and single them out and say, all of the actions and the volitions and the wishes that you would have, these 10 are the ones that, you that are really going to trip you up. These 10 are the ones that are really going to be hard for you to work with. So be aware of them. And remember, you know, what, he's, what he said is, wherever we put the mind, that's where it will incline. And of course, we'll talk about that with rising tension. But so if we start to incline the mind towards really understanding this, what begins to happen is you'll notice changes in your actions and changes in, your, in what you decide you want to do and how you decide you want to do things, just because you've reflected. I was in a place again last week where there were a lot of mosquitoes. Right? And it's really a discipline to not because they hurt and they love my blood. 
my blood is really sweet for mosquitoes. And so each time someone lands on your face or on your neck, you know, I know in winter in New York it's not a big deal, it's not a problem. But wait, you know, till you go to the country, you'll see. There's a way in which we are completely oblivious and unconscious. And because we're so we're so conditioned towards comfort and so conditioned towards um, self-referencing that we don't reflect. Oh, so this mosquito is just having a little meal. Right? We can let him have his meal and then brush him away. We don't have to kill him. And, you know, in the beginning, what? You see everybody else around you doing it. So you do it. Because when you're this big, that's what you're trained to do. But as you grow and you mature and you understand suffering and the end of suffering, you begin to understand that even that kind of small restraint, that kind of small discipline, begins to take you in a diff- onto a different path. So we're talking about the path and how we get on the path, and we're talking about wisdom moving us onto the path. I'm going to give you a five-minute break so that um, you can just stretch your body and do it okay. Um, I had a friend who, after killing a mosquito, and I commented on it, she said, I'm only giving it an opportunity for higher rebirth. Oh, <laughs> that's one way of looking at it. So, actions are wholesome or unwholesome depending on their roots, right? So, can anybody, I, this is like, this is like one of those, remember, I remember in college they used to give you easy questions so to kind of warm you up at the beginning. I'm going to give you an easy question. So what are the unwholesome roots that cause um, an action to be unwholesome? Did you say unwholesome roots? Yeah, there are three. There are three unwholesome roots. Greed, hatred, and delusion. Thank you. You can call it greed aversion and delusion or greed hatred and delusion, depending on which one gets your attention. And what are the three unho- what are the three wholesome roots, which are the opposites? So you can probably guess. So I'll tell you. They're called non-greed, <laughs> non-hatred, and non-delusion. <laughs> I know you'll have to study really hard to remember that. So they, so it sounds like it's just the, you know, non-greed is just the, the absence of greed and non-hatred or non-aversion is the absence of aversion or hatred or, uh, and the same for delusion, but actually it's a little bit more than that. So non-greed, is not just the absence of greed, but it's actually also renunciation. There's a kind of positive part to that. There's renunciation and detachment and generosity. So all of those, renunciation, detachment, and generosity, are not just really pretty ideas. They are really 
seminal to practice. And when we talk about meditation on the on the Eightfold Path, we're really talking about disciplining the mind and disciplining the heart to make them ready to be able to let go through renunciation, to let go through detachment, and to let go through generosity. So these practices, you know, and as you know, generosity and renunciation are the first two of the um, the paramitas, the perfections of the Buddha. And so when we talk about generosity and renunciation, we're talking about them as foundational practices. So it's not surprising that they are part of this first uh, um, step on the Eightfold Path, as they're part of wisdom. So, non, so renunciation, detachment, and generosity. And non-aversion is not just hatred, but it also implies loving kindness and sympathy and gentleness. So again, if, we, if the mind inclines where we put it, that's why we do a meta practice. It's because to just say, okay, you should be loving and kind, well, good luck with that, right? Because we all know that we meet beings in this world that it's really hard for us to be loving and kind to us. So how does that happen? How do we, how do we step on this path? How do we walk this path is by understanding that greed, hatred, and delusion are the roots of unwholesome action which cause suffering. And that the practice that what we're talking about as we've been saying over and over and over again is not just some conceptual idea of what is wonderful, but it's how do we practice? And that's the question that we're going to keep coming back to over and over and over and over again in this and the next two weeks, is how do we practice? What do we do? with this understanding. So the so if, if if karma and your understanding of karma up to now as you know actions and consequences is just is is not quite accurate. It's karma vipaka is consequences. But karma itself is where we start, right? Because that's what we have some control of. We don't have control over the consequences. But if we're wise, we understand what the consequences of our actions will be. You get the, it, you know, it's, it's so beautiful. These teachings are so beautiful because they're so step by step by step. We're not um, you know, jumping over anything, but really building the blocks to wisdom. We're building the blocks to understanding why we practice and how we practice. So non-delusion is not just an absence of delusion, but an invitation for wisdom. So non-greed is what? What else? And what else? 
lover? And what's non-aversion? And what else? Thank you. And sympathy is a kind of buzzword for compassion. And this and gentleness is a way of being with others in joy and in sorrow. Right? And having some understanding of the connection between us. And delusion is taken care of by uh, wisdom. So any action originating from renunciation, detachment, and generosity, from kindness, gentleness, and sympathy, and from wisdom, is a wholesome karma. And that's the first understanding of um, under this heading of wisdom is the understanding of karma. And, and I wouldn't just say, okay, now I understand. Now I get it. What you'll know with these teachings is that over the years, they go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And it's worth, even after you've been practicing for 20 years or 30 years or 40 years or however long you've been practicing, to go back that's why teaching is such a privilege, because I'm always forced to remind myself of what these teachings are. And I always think it's such an incredible privilege to be forced to do it, right? Because otherwise, I'd have this delusion that I really understand it mm -hmm. completely. And I realize every time I look at it again, I don't. There's something else that kind of pops out that there's another, un another level of understanding that arises and that informs your practice. So the most important feature of karma is its capacity to produce results corresponding with the ethical quality of the volition, of the action. So vipaka is uh, ripening or fruit. So it's ripening or fruit of the action. So this law connecting actions with their fruits works on the very simple principle that unwholesome actions result in suffering and wholesome actions result in happiness. And I know I'm repeating myself over and over and over again. But that's what allows us to begin to really understand what's happening. So any action leaves an imprint on our mental continuum. And when I say action, I'm now talking about action and its volition. So comma, in the real sense, in the volitional action sense. So there's a, an imprint that's left. It's like, a, in, in a way, I think that's what Maria may have been pointing to. That there's a larger context in which we can see our actions, in which we can see what's happening. And then, the, so this, it's a very simple law. And it's, it's not that, you know, John Lennon had that song, Instant Karma. Instant Karma is going to get you. Remember in the 80s, 
some of you may not remember. But, you know, so that's the understanding we all got of it, but it's actually not, you know, so there's not like this guy up in the sky with, you know, a long white beard who's like saying, oh, you did bad, you're gonna get, you're gonna get it, I'm gonna make it happen to you. It's that there's some, there's an imprint left. So every time we smack that mosquito, there's an imprint. And it may be a tiny little imprint, I mean, we're talking mosquito, right? but we're talking life. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an imprint that happens on the continuum. And all of us know it because we're all human and we all know that all the stuff that we've done over our lifetime, our lifetime or lifetime, comes back, you know, eventually. And we remember the things we did. And you go on, how many of you have been on retreats, on meditation retreats? So you know. When you sit in a retreat, what happens? Like all that stuff comes just rising up to the surface, right? So one hopes that, you know, from time to time one has done a kindness <laughs> just to ameliorate uh, the effects of these other unwholesome acts on our, on our mental continuum. But I don't want you to like, think of this as shame or guilt or anything else. But as, as Sean was saying, experience that is in, in the midst of which we are teachable, that we understand how things are. And, and we can forgive ourselves for the things that we didn't understand, as Diane said in the beginning, you know, that we, we know how things are. Right? And so now we know how things are in this particular way. And hopefully our understanding grows. But right now, are we endeavoring to be in the truth of the way things are right now as they are? And, in, and we understand from that that previously we may not have understood things to be as they are. And so we can forgive ourselves. And who's the first person that we approach with this non-aversion of loving kindness and gentleness and sympathy? It's this one, this person. Because from the understanding of that and from the ability to be kind to ourselves, then we can be kind to others. And that's part of right intention, is that intention to be kind not cruel, not aggressive. And not being aggressive doesn't mean that you don't do what needs to be done. Because sometimes we take things to the extreme, we hear something like that, we say, oh, I can't, you know, I have to like lay back. No, use your full energy for what needs to be done. But what is the quality of that energy, which is what this is pointing to is what is the quality of our volition? What is happening in the mind when we decide to act? So I'm not going to go into this life and present life and future lives. We know that in the Buddhist cosmology, it's, it's positive that there is a mental uh, consciousness that lives on, that even after the body dies, that there's 
a mental continuum that happens. And uh, so whether you believe that or not, up to you. But you can certainly understand it for this life. And you could maybe even understand it as having different lives within this one life. Right? Who were you 15 years ago and who are you today? And are you the same person? So I just, I'm going to close on this and just say that good and bad, right and wrong is a much larger question. It's not, that's not what this is about. It's not what this teaching on karma is about. Because what is good and what is bad and what is right and what is wrong transcends conventional opinions about what is good and what is bad and what is right and what is wrong. So we put it in the sense of uh, suffering and the end of suffering. A whole society can be predicated on a wrong idea about what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is bad. You just have to look at our racist society. That's the system is built on the idea of racism. And I say that not from necessarily the point of view of a person of color, but from one who's studied it, that it is, and, and if you really talk to people who understand the history, they understand that it's a, the system is rigged in that way. And yet we all swim in it, and we all go about our business, and we all do what we need to do. And we all, on a personal level, may not be racist, but we live in a racist system. Right? So the conventional opinion and the conventional idea may be that things as they are is perfectly fine, right? and that anybody who sees it differently is deluded. Well, you know, maybe that's true. <laughs> we will never know, right? But we may be, a whole society can be predicated on uh, incorrect moral values. And you just have to look around the world to see that. Forget about racism. Just look at the Middle East and how people live in all of these cultures that really have beliefs about a whole country of people are wrong. Right? Whatever the opinions are, and I'm not taking sides. So how is that morally correct? And everybody in that society may applaud something as correct. Everybody may applaud it. And and condemn some other thing as wrong, but it doesn't make them validly right and wrong. And this is the kind of reflection that the Buddha was inviting. So when, when you two are talking about truth, it's a really interesting way of 
working with wisdom. What is truth? What is correct? And I'm not saying this is right or this is wrong or this is correct or this is not correct because we really need to think this through, reflect on all of this for ourselves. And what is, and what is necessary is education. If we remain ignorant and deluded, we can never be wise. It's the opposite of wisdom. And just look around at how many people live perfectly happy in their ignorance. And when the Buddha talked about the three roots, the three unwholesome roots of these defilements, he actually preferred one as that leading to suffering. And that was delusion. That was ignorance. And he gave his teaching on the uh, 12 links in the chain of dependent origination. What he said is that ignorance is the root that leads to suffering. That's the one he chose. Because he could see how ignorance was even at the root of greed and aversion. So wisdom, my dear friend, is what is really the starting point, the midpoint, and the end of this eightfold path. And we've only talked about uh, karma the understanding of karma. But look at how it blossoms and flowers and begins to um, move into all of the other aspects of the path. It forms the basis of the path and it informs the rest of the path and the rest of the path is dependent on it. And we'll see as we go along how all of the other steps in the path also come back on each other. And next week we'll talk about um, the mundane, the super mundane wisdom of the Four Noble Truths, and we'll also talk about intention. And then we'll get in, we'll start with ethics. So we have a few minutes for questions. I'm sorry I went a little bit over um, what I wanted, the amount of time I wanted to take. I wanted to leave you more time for questions. But maybe we'll start with questions next week. Are there any quest- immediate questions tonight? Yes. is a very, very much a part of loving kindness. How can we, how can we move forward without really um, asking forgiveness for the things that we may have done to harm others, forgiving ourselves for the things that we've done to harm ourselves, 
and forgiving others for what they have done to harm us, but also asking them to forgive us for what we may have done in ignorance before them, where maybe a little bit of one of our veils have fallen away or the scales have fallen off of our eyes and we've seen that what we did was wrong. So, or what we did was harmful or hurtful, of course, of course. And there are practices for forgiveness too. And so it's a three-way thing where you start with forgiving yourself for what you may have done that may have been harmful to you. And then you think about the things that you may have done that you would like to ask forgiveness for. And you ask for forgiveness for them. And you can do it either with that person or do it in the abstract. Do it in your, in your practice, in your personal practice. And then offering forgiveness. And it's hard, because sometimes we really feel betrayed, we really feel abandoned, we really feel as if we've been wronged. And sometimes we really feel that kind of you know, righteous indignation, right? And yet, we also understand what that kind of aversion, which is what it is, does to our bodies, and to our hearts, and to our minds, right? It ends in suffering. So um, forgiveness is one of those teachings that many of my colleagues will not do because they because when they do it, people really get crazy, you know, and they cut it. And I've heard lots of terrible stories of people being raped by their parents and terrible stories. Terrible, terrible, terrible story. And people say, how dare you ask me to forgive them? Because there's a, there's a misunderstanding that forgiveness is about them. But forgiveness is about us. It's about your own heart. It's about what you're living with. And whether there's bitterness in your own heart and is that what, how you want to live? And cruelty. So forgiveness is the beginning of letting go of that, but it could be a lot, can be a really long journey. It's, so, it's not like we sit down, it's like every other practice in Dharma. It's over a long <laughs> period of time. It's like, what else do you have to do with your life? <laughs> right? So. It's not like, okay, so we're going to meditate today and tomorrow we'll be enlightened. Or we're going to sit down and forgive everybody in our lives that ever did us wrong and tomorrow we're going to be free of that. No. We do it over and over and over and over and over again because where you put the mind, that's where it will incline. So you, every time it moves, you put it back. Every time it moves, you put it back. And eventually it starts to incline there itself. And to forgive yourself if you can't forgive. That's where you start. That's where you start. That's where you start. And allow, allow that too. Allow all of the feelings, allow all of the stories of the mind, all of the feelings, all of the ways in which you've been harmed. 
and have some compassion for that. So it's not a it's not a ripping yourself and making yourself forget, but really knowing that's where the heart needs to incline. And giving it its own time and its own journey. You're welcome. Is your name? Um, I was struck by what you were saying about societies being predicated on wrong view um, and it's something that I think about a lot and I just feel like we're, a lot of places are so far behind in the process of reaching a, a more right view um, and it's partially the reason why I stay out of political discussions and it's something I stay out of because I'm too emotional about it and I'm too attached to the idea of what's right. Um, and I just wonder, I know that there, this society and there are so many societies that are in that sort of, in that wrong place and I wonder, is, are, do you know of a place, that, that a country, a place, a people, um, a people that you, you have encountered that might be I don't know, closer to, to, to these teachings and to living in this, in this better way. And I don't know, it's just something I, I always think about. Um, well, we're all human, <laughs> is the first thing. So, yeah, I think that I, I want to avoid saying we're right and they're wrong, right? Because it's not true. Um, and I want to also say that the, because these are teachings, it means that they're also learnings. Right? And what it means is that we're all trying to practice as well as we possibly can. And it doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes. And I've met a lot of masters who are supposedly enlightened, and maybe are, I don't know. And they have interesting personalities, <laughs> right? So we may judge, we may judge people according, uh, you know, it's what I was saying before, that we, we judge according to what we know. And so the whole understanding of not judging, which doesn't mean not discerning, but understanding the level of our own delusion. And someone was saying, I don't remember who was, uh, it may have been, it may have been Shari, about really having the compassion for people who are deluded because we understand our own delusion, right? It's not, because when we have compassion, it's not that we're like this wonderful being who's perfect and everybody else is imperfect, so we have great compassion. The compassion comes out of first the understanding of, oh, darn, this is where I'm, I've gone astray, right? And so we understand how others go astray. So the idea that there's an ideal enlightened society somewhere, maybe there is, I haven't seen it. And I've been to Tibet, and I've been to Bhutan, and I've been to, I've, you know, stayed for extended periods in monasteries, and I've, and I've seen wonderful monks who are renunciates, who have interesting personalities, right? 
And I, so, and I, I've learned, of, and I, I, I used to be very idealistic about the monastic community, and I'm not anymore. Because I see, oh, they're all human, and they're all doing the best they can. And a renunciate life is wonderful, and it also has its issues. So every, so, you know, when the Buddha said the middle way, it was brilliant. It's not that, and it's not that, it's somewhere here. And how wide is this channel? So your own heart is what needs work. And not you, but all of us. All our own heart is what needs work. And to um, to have the experience that some a couple of you talked about in the beginning of wisdom, so that you feel the conviction of that wisdom. But because you feel the conviction of that wisdom, you can hold it lightly. It's like a bird. If you hold it too too hard, it will crush it to death. And if you open your hand too wide, it will fly away. So how do you hold the bird? That's how you hold wisdom. In a really light way. Neither too hard nor too soft. And, and where and to really see where do you need work? And that's how you will create your own enlightened society. Because what you discover when you practice is that more and more you're drawn to the people that you need to be drawn to. And eventually the people that you don't need to be drawn to fall away. They just fall away. It's not like you have to reject them or say they're wrong or they're this or they're that. It's just they fall away. So the like-minded people start to appear in your life. And the people that are not quite the right fit for you, then it's not that they become enemies, or that you don't like them anymore, or they don't like you. It's just they fall away. And you may see them, and it's perfectly fine. But it's not who you need to, to be with. And so you don't need to find like a whole ideal place because there is no ideal place. There is no ideal place. There is no perfect place. That's what we were saying last week with the Four Noble Truths. There is no perfection in this life. But there is freedom. There is that place of total, utter, and complete freedom. But there is no perfection. Thank you all for your attention again. I'm so delighted to be with you. And what I'd like to ask you to do is to really um, allow these, this, these teachings on wisdom to really flow through you during the week and to see the places that something has something has popped for you. Some, understanding has popped for you, some wisdom has popped. And it does either here or as you go through life, as you go through your normal work and family and whatever else you do, just really pay attention. Pay attention to where you understand karma. 
Pay attention to where you really understand the Four Noble Truths and pay attention to where it doesn't work. You think, this doesn't work for me. You know, someone was saying, well, it makes me feel a little weird to operate in a world, you know, as, as, as yours, as Raven is also saying, where, you know, it's not quite as, it's not quite aligned with the values that we're trying to establish here. How do we, how do we work with that? What is wisdom? How, how do we wisely work with being a kind of misfit? If you're, that your practice makes you a kind of misfit, either at your place of work or your place. What's wise? What would be the middle way? To kind of start to reflect in that way so that the teachings come alive for you. They're not just these dead teachings from some old books or old suttas, but they're actually alive now in your life, right here and right now. Every issue that comes up in your life, the Dharma has some application, some wisdom to offer you. So pay attention to that. Really pay attention. And please try to meditate at least once a day to clear your mind. Because if your mind is clear, these, these teachings become much, much clearer and much more evident. And you don't have to reach so much. Reach so much to find them in your own heart. So let's dedicate the merit of our practice to the benefit, the happiness, the welfare, the awakening, and the true wisdom of all beings everywhere without exception. Wishing tenderly and sympathetically that all beings be happy and peaceful, all beings be safe and protected from all harm and danger, all beings be healthy of mind, body, heart, and spirit, and may all beings live with complete ease, free from struggle. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.